Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Romain. And I'm George Chen. And you're listening to SubDoc. And we're doing a special uh, clip show today. We're going to play some interviews from directors because, you, you know, if you followed the show the whole time, you'll know that we usually we're just comedians and we talk to our friends and sometimes we actually talk to real hardcore film directors, like award-winning folks that have really been in the trenches. So, uh, we've got different sides we want to show you uh, for our show. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we've we set out just basically two couple comedians wanting to talk to comedians. And then five and a half years later, we've talked to people who have been on TV, journalists, other hosts of other podcasts. And some of our favorite documentary um, talks we've had is with the actual filmmakers of those the documentaries we're talking about. And that is what today is all about. So, George, why don't you set up the first clip? Yeah, this is a film that actually uh, I I was lucky enough to get a really early screening uh, right before this showed at Sundance. I think it's basically the same cut that was shown at Sundance. And this is Feels Good Man, which is independently produced, independently released. They did not get picked up by one of the bigger networks, probably because the topic is about uh, Pepe the Frog. So, like, if you can imagine, like, the billboards. No, no, Netflix didn't want to, like, have a giant Pepe the Frog billboard <laughs> on Sunset. But um, uh, Arthur Jones and Giorgio Angelini were gracious enough to come over to my house and talk to me. Uh, I th- yeah, we, I talked to them after Sundance happened, but before the film was widely available. So this was actually a very... Early on, and it, you can get it anywhere now. Uh, you can rent it, buy it on iTunes and other places. But yeah, feels good, man. It's the story of Matt Fury, and uh, this is more of a chat where we just kind of talked about the entire process that Arthur, first-time director Arthur, and Giorgio, the producer, went through to make Feels Good Man. Were you doing this between doing? paid work essentially or kind of like to keep this going for the last few years yeah yes i we, mean we both this is not an obvious yeah. question but i you know yeah. like I, I know how many of our our listeners are actually filmmakers themselves but i know it's, it's like a, it's a it's a it's a different system than yeah. like pitching a fiction film type situation uh, especially if you're new to it like yeah. you know no one wants to give you money until you've already made the money for sure <laughs> um that's just the reality of the business yeah the first year in particular like yeah, no, I, I worked really hard. I know we both did on a lot of different projects. And um, the, maybe the last nine months or a year, we were pretty much able to work on the film full time, which was an amazing thing. Um, we found great partners at Wavelength Productions and the Chicago Media Project to come in and help us. But yeah, the first year and a half, we were just bootstrapping it ourselves. Or they're great. I, I think uh, with some types of 
documentaries is maybe grants you can mm. apply for. Yeah. We applied yeah. for all we, of them. We, we just didn't get it. Yeah. Like, yeah. You want to talk about the Nazi frog? Yeah. No way. No, uh, that funny. I think was, uh, I, I think, yeah, you boiled down basically <laughs> the, the, the problem people had with the film uh, initially when they heard about it. Right. Yeah. Um, Cause it, that's, that's the thing is like in your head, you're a filmmaker and you're like, you know what it's going to feel like the, the final product, but it's so hard to render that, in other people's minds and like mm-hmm. in a substantive way until you actually finish the film. So we were kind of up against the fact that we didn't really have much of a track record to, sh- to prove that like, just trust us with this really potentially toxic film. And then what's been so rewarding is that now that we've kind of started to screen it publicly and the people have started to respond, it's like, Oh, I had no idea about Matt's life. And this is such a surprisingly heartwarming story. And it's mm-hmm. like, I don't know that that's a part of the gratitude conversation. Just grateful that like people are, are finally getting it and that hopefully in the future granting bodies. will. Be, <laughs> take, I don't know. If this we, is yeah. We had to make a switch where like we could, we could write a bunch of grants or make a film. Yeah. We're going to choose to make a film. Yeah. yeah I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Who's who the grants are. But we did end up getting, once we finished the film, some really kind donors did come in at the very end. Yeah. Um, and that's just the way it is. And I totally understand. It's like, there's a lot of risk there. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, and it is a, it, it's a film that really is incredibly complicated. Yeah. I hope that we threaded the needle on it. I think we threaded the needle yeah. on it. Um, but yeah, it deals with all of these zigzagging sort of like narratives, and it also has all of this kind of like wild stylistic stuff. So getting people to to trust us early wasn't going to happen. But once we had like a forty five minute cut that mm-hmm. we felt really good about, um, it was a lot easier to find like collaborators um, and production companies to help us who also believed in the vision of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it is like, uh, it is such a fascinating story and uh, the, the seeing Matt as this sort of family guy and, uh, I should say family man, not family guy, uh, in terms of animation. Uh, also I love, there's one quote of his, I love, which I don't know. I don't know what I can talk about way too much. Go ahead. Where, uh, he's in the deposition. They're like, you have this like, lazy layabout lifestyle. He's like, no, I still have that. Yeah, sure. Get a great it's laugh a really good screening. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I actually find that moment to be really inspiring. I yeah. love that moment because basically just for a little backstory, it's, you know, Matt is getting grilled in a deposition by Alex Jones's attorney who very much sounds like Alex Jones. He's <laughs> sort of, he's a very similar personality. He's pills at him. Yeah. Like, no, but he, the, the, he, protein powder. he's an aggressive <laughs> yeah. dude with a lot of bluster. And so, yeah, he says, Matt, like, you know, has like, uh, he, he says he has this, he accuses him having this knucklehead life and Matt's just like, yeah, I still have. (laughs) And I actually think it's like important for people like Matt has never compromised himself during Mm -hmm. any of this, like even in this deposition that went on for hours Mm -hmm. and he's being grilled by like a guy in a suit. And it's very much like Matt is out of his depth. You know, in the film, you see Matt getting a haircut and putting on a suit, two things that are (laughs) not what he would maybe normally do. And he wouldn't have to do because he's an artist. Um, but in the, in the footage, he is always himself. He keeps his sense of humor. He keeps his composure. Um, and I think that, uh, it allows us to tell this farcical story as it really is as Mm. a farce, Mm -hmm. um, especially those moments. But yeah, I love how he just, 
keeps his sunny, weird disposition throughout this whole thing in a way that I hope that if you're a young person watching this, because I do think this film is going to be watched by a lot of people who are like 18, 20, you see that and you realize you can kind of live an uncompromised life, you know, as you grow up and continue to be passionate about the things you're passionate about. Wow. Yeah. Uh, if you want to know the story of exactly what the lawsuit was about, uh, yeah, so InfoWars was selling like a poster and it had a bunch of uh, different imagery on it. And one of the images was, I believe, the Donald Trump Pepe. Uh, so he basically, it got to this point where Matt Fury is just like an underground comics guy who created these really like chilled out characters that turned into memes that were adopted by the alt-right. So it's just a very complicated story, as he was saying, uh, as Officer and Georgia were saying. Um, but it? yeah, I th he won. He won the lawsuit actually. Matt so Fury I, did. Yeah, he actually won the lawsuit against Alex Jones, and I believe Alex Jones needed to like uh, he had to stop selling the poster, and then owed uh, owed Matt money. But then I, I don't know. I think he may have gotten around that somehow or like I don't know right. that he ever got paid by the InfoWars company. <laughs> so this was uh, Arthur's first film then? Yeah. So like. Arthur comes from an animation background and him and Giorgio actually had worked on another film together, which was about redlining, uh, where Arthur did the titles and the animations. And yeah, uh, he's done. He, yeah, he has an animation background. He's like went to RISD and stuff. Uh, and this is his first film and we get into this interview. This is episode 137. This just came out in like, this just came out before like quarantine happened and stuff. I think. Right. It, yeah. They're in your house. February, beginning of March. Yeah. It's kind of yeah, I was like, yeah, I know. It's, it's like, and I don't even live in that house anymore. So, um, yeah, it's uh, a great story. It's really, if you're interested in like, uh, underground comics at all, or just like meme culture, I, and just like even there's a whole sideline about just people that adopted Pepe as a meme and like how he sort of represents all these under, you know, represented people that feel like uh, it, it's it's like troll, you know, it breaks down troll culture very well as well. And so did it's funny. Yeah. Did the Pepe thing that started from like 4chan or something? Right. So the film gets into it. It's like uh, he basically just made these very, very like apolitical, <laughs> chill comics. And like one of them, they got uploaded to like MySpace. And then from there, uh, it started to be associated with like workout culture. Uh, and then it just it just so took weird. off and people. Yeah. And then they're sort of like. A bunch of turns. The Pepe, there's so much going on with it. There is like a uh, cryptocurrency based on Pepe, which we get into. There's like all these really interesting interviews, like people that have researched memes forever. Anyway, like uh, definitely watch Feels Good Man and then listen to our episode 137, uh, where I talked to Arthur and Giorgio. Uh, it's a really fun story. So let me, uh, let me ask you yeah. why out of this, um, you know, this entire interview, what stood out for you for this clip? Why did you pick this clip? Actually, uh, Nick, our associate producer, picked this clip, but I, I really liked this interview. Um, I really, firstly, like they were, it was, it was, it felt like a scoop, right? We kind of got this before it was really available anywhere. So it was one of the f maybe first three or four podcast interviews that Arthur had done. And I think since then he's been like on office hours and stuff like that. Yeah. He's um, on What the Fuck with Mark Marin and. Yeah. Um, I think like. 
the talking like them being new filmmakers was part of it um and just like i just wanted to know more like as a first time filmmaker that's come from animation like how do you even get into this yeah that's and, really interesting yeah. Yeah. i think that's what a lot of people want to know the process is really interesting and it's like as we listen to some more of these clips i think i think an overarching kind of an umbrella theme to this episode that we're doing with some of our favorite clips from these directors is like a process kind of situation mm -hmm. because like as most people who get into film and making films you start to realize like there it's whatever you can do however you can do it I, i'm gonna shout out another podcast that i actually really love which is called long form and it's with the journalists it's like journalists talking to other journalists about their process and it's very similar in uh it's very similar not to like this specific interview but like the 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 act you know in the way that documentary filmmaking is sort of like parallel to journalism but it's like obviously like you know, and the level of research and like really like following these weird threads and seeing where they go, like the the best like nonfiction work uh, is like that. So, yeah, long form, I think, is also if you like this type of of story, I think it's the kind of thing you would like uh, that podcast. So, yeah, listen to our podcast and listen to long form. <laughs> And then go watch Feels Good Man. Um, yeah. It is a really good. I, I, I watched it a couple months ago, and it is really good doc. It's, yeah. uh, it's, there's, it's uh, that story is insane. And I wanted to also. Uh, I did pick this other clip, which is one of actually it's technically our first director interview. So we had only done a handful of interviews. It's not even technically. It is. Oh yeah, no, it's our first director interview. We. Um, we somehow like I think it was Sean Yuyahara from SF International Film Festival. Actually, I think pitched to us like do you want to talk to jody willie who did the source family and we're like um yeah we've only put out like we'd only put out like our first three episodes i think at that point yeah like an actual like well you know like i think it'd been nominated for a bunch of awards and stuff um yeah this she, is episode four so yeah and all we had she, done before then is like a, a, something about the iron Sheik. <laughs> yeah, Drew Harmon. Yeah, uh, our first couple episodes with Matt Lieb and uh, Beth Lissick and Drew Harmon. But um, so I, uh, Sean Yohara was the director of the SF International Film Festival. He sort of was like, "Hey, Jody Willie is doing this thing. We actually didn't. I don't think we we didn't get to go to the the live thing, but it was talking about the her other uh, subsequent thing. The Source Family was about the Unarius, the Unarians, which is another uh, UFO uh, group." based out of Southern California. But uh, her work that you would know, or a lot of people would know, is the Source family, Father Yod, fascinating story of like a vegetarian restaurant turned into a new spiritual group slash rock and roll commune. Right. It's bonkers story. And uh, Jody became like this expert in it and became the filmmaker. She had a, uh, yeah, so we talked to her very early on. This is 2015. And let's throw to that clip. What a lot of people don't realize, not just with the Source family, but with a lot of these social experiments that happened in the 60s and 70s, these so-called cults, communes, homesteads, is that that period, like 69 to 75, a lot of people, even writers and scholars, think that like the whole counterculture died in 69 with right. Manson and Altamont. For me, with my independent research and getting to know a lot of people who lived through that period, I feel like 69 is when people really got serious. Like they were like, 
holy shit like this you know the the the, the flower power is not working right. you know what i mean like yeah. we can't we we and we cannot work the, with the man we're gonna have to build our own world we're gonna have to build our own society and so i feel like these communities attracted some of the brightest lights of the era you know these really bright lights that that uh, wanted to explore things beyond what they'd been shown you know and so if you if you had a spiritual leader who was who was actually kind of I mean everybody I've talked to with about Father Yod was like he was really like he was clairvoyant like he was he was producing phenomena I cannot explain and I've heard from a number of groups back then where somebody was doing that and what that did was it just allowed people to sort of expand beyond their own mindset and into new possibilities and what happened was these groups i think not just the spiritual ones but the anarchist communities the craft communities they served as cultural incubators where people could get away from the the mainstream ideas and brainwash <laughs> and they could figure out uh, new ideas and new ways of being and most people don't realize that you know steve jobs was a fruitarian and lived on a commune he was like an acid dropping hippie he was totally part of the scene Stuart brand one of the founders of the internet i mean he was he was one of the publishers of the, of the whole earth catalog which was like the engine for right. these people and then in the source family we had um we had uh, magus the aquarian who went to sell his internet um headhunting staffing company for like 60 million dollars during the dot-com boom and then Zinaru and the family who became a stem cell pioneer. Oh, right. And yeah. then there was there were others. Those were just a couple I mentioned, but there was one woman who founded two really successful vegetarian restaurants and then started this organization for women in third world countries that worked with United Nations. Like there were people who went on to do really interesting things. And that happened a lot with these groups, the people who sort of laid the groundwork for like the mind, body, spirit uh, trend, the yoga trend, the Whole Foods, the CEO of Whole Foods was like a vegetarian living in a cooperative. <laughs> like they were doing radical stuff that, that like hipsters nowadays are only starting to fantasize about. Yeah. Oh uh, man, I've, I haven't seen the film in a while, but actually like Jody's like the more I've like learned about Jody and what she's into, cause she also worked as an like sort of underground publishing for a long time. Right. And she's like kind of in, she has her fingers like in involved in so many different things. Like she was like on the boards of a bunch of different organizations in LA. And, uh, yeah, so she's like been really a champion for like, uh, alternative media for such a long time. And we didn't even really get into that aspect of her work. But um, I was thinking about this quote in terms of just having done The Vow and talking about Nexium, how there's this thing of like, yeah, actually successful people, they want successful people to be part of these groups. Exactly. And like they have the drive to kind of like, you know, bootstrap things. And also they had resources yeah. uh, to start with. So it helped Father Yod, it helped Yohawa for sure to have these people uh, that were so dedicated, yeah. I think it's also interesting, she talks about the spiritual leaders and Yod having clairvoyance or being able to do things that people can't explain. And like, as these cults get, or groups get bigger and bigger, the cult of personality and these myths start being mm -hmm. created of like, oh, the leader can, can float around and they can heal people, you know, and it just starts becoming this this story that like wraps itself around itself. Well, what was really interesting talking to Jody is like, I think you and I probably watched The Source Family and we're just like, what a nut. And you really got the sense from talking to her. She was just like, it's valid. It's like there was everything they were doing. She did not come at it with a cynical view at all. 
She right. was very open to like what very. what uh, Yohawa was all about, and I thought that was really interesting because I think like a lot of the films we like can be a little bit winky winky when it comes to documentary. Or, like yeah. there's a sort of like period of like late '90s documentary that was a little bit winky and like you know comedic, but uh, you know everything that happened in Swiss family is like was very bizarre, but, um, really talking to her, I was like, Oh wow. I kind of have a different take on this film now. So that's something I wouldn't have gotten from not, from not doing this interview. I would not have, uh, came out with that angle. No, of course. If we, and you know, again, we had started the, the idea originally with Subdoc was to just talk to comedians about their favorite docs. And she was the first non-comedian basically that we'd talked to. And I remember her saying like, I'm super intimidated. You guys are comedians. And <laughs> you know, like, I don't know what I'm supposed to say. And we were like, well, we're intimidated. You're a filmmaker. Like we don't know how to make a film, you know? Yeah. And it was, I remember leaving too. uh, this, this talk actually I, I gave her a ride back to her hotel and on that r ride she was even talking about more about the cults and the people and you and it's exactly what you're saying she was so into it that she you know like that that was a very fresh thing because if it had been you me and another comedian we would not have had this we just ripped these people up probably yeah. you know yeah and like it's really interesting how many of these cults existed in like California in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, mm -hmm. like it was, they're so secretive. And now I don't even know if you could really get away with it, probably, but it just seems now with social media and everything. Yeah. Well, it's just interesting. That also that parallel she was saying of 69 and like of Manson and all that stuff of like, this was like, you know, people like taking the idea of flower power and being like, let's just apply it in different ways and like try to like make a working thing out of it. Yeah. Well, and some people would say that's where the, the boomer generation let us all down is they had these ideals and then they were like, but you know, I want to go to wall street now and make a bunch of money and leave that shit behind, you know? And I don't <sighs> remember if, if it's in the episode or not, but I do remember her telling us that Jen Jennifer Aniston worked at that vegetarian restaurant. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Before yeah. she got her big break, she was like one of the waitresses there. Oh yeah. I think I actually went to that restaurant one time too, because my sister is vegan. So I think we were down there and we like went to that restaurant, not knowing the background because it's still, it's still one of the restaurants kept going. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, our first, very first director interview and then our most recent director interview back yeah. to back. Yeah. yeah. This is with uh, Jeff Hortig and this was just a couple of weeks ago. We got the opportunity to talk to Jeff and this is one of those, you know, uh, interviews I was extremely excited about because he had made some of my absolute favorite documentaries and it's like, I, I just have this, you know, I'm such a big doc nerd and I love, I love docs so much and I've always been fascinated by directors. So learning, like, like I love, I love learning how like people got their, the impetus and the catalyst to make a film. Cause you can make mm -hmm. a doc about anything, you know, mm -hmm. like I tried when I was in college to make a doc about the Gibson guitar factory that was in Kalamazoo and it shuttered and moved to Tennessee in mm -hmm. the mid nineties when I was in college and I wanted to make a doc about it. And I had no clue how to start zero. I had zero clue, so I didn't do it. And it's always fascinating to me where people are like, I heard this thing. I was in journalism school, but I just decided to make a doc, you know, like, 
How? Actually, having watched, having talked to all these people, I'm like, I even, I'm even more like, like, I don't know if I have what it takes to do it. You know, like I definitely, it's a point I've definitely had ideas for documentaries. I'm like having yeah. talked to all these people. I'm like, w- are you willing to give up like five years of your life? I'm like, I mean, without maybe any, when I was younger, I don't know yeah. now <laughs> with maybe zero help with distribution. It's the same with like wanting to start a record label. I feel it's like, yeah, oh, I've done that. I've done that. So, <laughs> well, <laughs> anyway, Jeff Fierzig. Yeah. I mean, his, you know, two of two of his films are like very influential to both of us, like uh, Daniel Devil and Daniel Johnston, which you've actually talked about on the show even before this. Yeah. And uh, the half Japanese band would be king. Very important. But um, this is a clip where we we were really just talking to Jeff about the through line of the subjects he picks. And you get some good Daniel Johnston stories in here. The the whole episode, go back and listen to episodes. One of the most, uh, the ones I'm surprised, a bunch of people reached out to both you and I about this episode. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, this is Jeff talking about uh, how he got the start with uh, making. And by the way, just before we get into this, the... The D- Devil and Daniel Johnston is now considered one of the greatest movie, I mean, um, docs. music docs mm-hmm. in existence. So this is very, this is very interesting. So this is Jeff talking about making that documentary. This stuff, the truth is stranger than fiction is never more true than in situations like that. And then like the creative madness. I mean, like, I feel like that kind of runs through some of your docs. It's like the creative madness of some people or the mad creativity of people, you know, like, do you, do you look for that? Or is that just something that unfolds? It seems with your subjects. It'd be tough to say I I was looking for it, but you know, I just love great stories. And, you know, I always thought Daniel first and foremost was an incredible story. Yeah. Um, Yes. He's a great artist, no doubt visually. And you know, his music, no, I mean, absolutely. But I remember back in, oh my God, it was probably 80, I got out of college in 86 or 85 when I was doing college radio, you know, Daniel and his cassettes, you know, emerged in the underground. That's a very tiny little world back then because mm-hmm. yeah. we have no internet, you know, we have fanzines. Right. And I, I remember my buddy from PRB, Ken Kacken, who went on to run Homestead Records, oh, okay. you know, he turned me on to Daniel and I, I, I just... You know, in the back of a fanzine, there was um, Stress Records, a little tiny ad. And I think that each cassette might have been $3, perhaps, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, pro- I think I ordered the whole thing, you know, all of them. Mm-hmm. Just send me them all. You know, I want every cassette. And there was, like, I think, eight cassettes at that point. So everybody only thinks about, hi, how are you? But every one of those cassettes is incredible. And they're all very different. So I ordered those tapes and, you know... Uh, obviously the primitive artwork, which now was tattooed on everybody's body and on, I don't know, van sneakers and Supreme t-shirts now, that was not the case, but nobody, people, people didn't take it seriously. But what I loved at the moment when I heard those tapes, obviously the songs of unrequited love and how open he was about documenting his own mental illness I loved, you know, he taped his mom yelling at him between the songs. And, you know, at that same moment, I was probably reading um, A Confederacy of Dunces. Right. And probably at the same exact moment, fell in love with um, Scorsese's The King of Comedy. And I was like, oh, and just a light bulb went off. I was like, "This this is the real version of that. This is Daniel, 
in a basement in West oh, Virginia yeah. and yelling and screaming back and forth with the mom. <laughs> and I was like, that's a movie. I said to myself, oh, this is 85. Wow. So I was so captivated by his self-documentation, his audio verite that he was putting out there. This was out there. So at the same time, maybe you had a great article. There was a fanzine by Mike McGonigal at the time called Chemical Imbalance, ironically. Mm -hmm. Daniel got the cover. So you had an in-depth, multiple-page article with <laughs> art and photos, and you're reading this thing, and you're just like, whoa. At the same time, unlike the Minutemen or Half Japanese or you name it, you know, Husker Du, they didn't, Daniel didn't tour. Mm. So that, mm. now we're thirsty. We want this. Is there like a <laughs> myth? Like, is it, yeah. is it all, you know, is the girl in all these hundreds of songs, Lori, does she even exist? The librarian, did he make her up? You know? Yeah. So he built this incredible myth. And then there was this one, you know, voice of communication, like, um, who's, the, who's the minister of information for public enemy? Prof Professor oh. Griff? Professor I think Griff, so. right? I think that's right. Yeah yeah. right. yeah. Yeah. Well, he was the minister of information. Well, Daniel had Tartikoff, the, 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 the little Jewish guy in Austin, Texas, stress mm -hmm. records. Now, that's pretty funny calling it stress records. <laughs> yeah. Daniel, I'm sure, ca caused a lot of stress. Right? I, I so, would imagine. So it was really this guy, this little Jewish guy, like, and I became his pen pal. And he's sending out, you know, all these tapes, and you get a little letter, and you, you get a little. You get a driven a drab of information, and you're just dying for more, because it it basically built a myth, and we couldn't see him. He couldn't come and he couldn't tour because he was often in the mental hospital, and that just made it even oh, crazier. Wow. So then, right. like you know, the Village Voice, and we had a great paper at the time um, that was better than the Voice, actually, the New York Press or the New York Free Press, which it was originally called. They started covering Daniel, so all of a sudden. When he crashed a plane or when he, you know, threw an old lady out a window, you know, it was like, what is going on? It was all playing out sort of before our eyes, not in real time, right. like now on the internet, but we got the information pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And then thank God for WFMU, you know, the greatest, yes. in my opinion, free form, independent college radio station in America. Now, they're not really a college radio station, but they were at Uppsala College in Jersey transmitting through there. But anyway, regardless, they were the huge boosters. So all of a sudden, Tartikoff, you know, he he sort of got a hold of the New York underground scene, which was Shimmy Disc Records with the producer Kramer, Chad Fair and Half Japanese, Sonic Youth, and Mo Tucker of the Velvet Underground. And... By basically networking through just those four points of light, and if you, and you could arguably throw in the butthole surfers in Texas, with those five points of light, Daniel took over the world. It was that simple, mm -hmm. at least in the underground world. Mm -hmm. Wow. And that was, I, I watched it all play out before my eyes. It was fascinating. That is, that is incredible. Spe you know, especially at that time to um, be able to, transcend like that for somebody like Daniel Johnston is just incredible. Yeah, I mean, like, talking about, like, there's, like, four points of light in the underground. It's like, oh, it's a butthole surfer, Sonic Youth, WFMU, and, like, like yeah. Japanese. Like, uh, Yola Tango. Like, like, yeah, like, it's, like, yeah, of course. that That's, like, 
the equivalent of king making in the in the mid eighties, I guess. Yeah, like having all those connections, like as the guy from Homestead Records, right? All that yeah, stuff. yeah. I mean, and that's again, it kind of it's kind of odd. I didn't I didn't really sense this theme, but so far we've been doing basically like how to build a myth theme in you know mm-hmm. these clips because that's what um, this is all about is building myths, you know, and building up structures and creating a persona in a in a stage feeling of your art or your your cult or your uh <laughs> your creation and animation you know right yod uh pepe and daniel johnston yeah. all, <laughs> yeah, all connected um also like we i speaking of wfmu i did interview tim k smith who made uh the great wfmu documentary sex and broadcasting which i also highly recommend i didn't get to talk to jeff about that but i imagine it seems right. like yeah like wfmu also just keeps coming up everywhere um, it's like it's such a central point. A lot of what Jeff talked about in that interview was sort of like this pre-internet or like, you know, very proto-internet uh, way that you would get your information and these sort of alternative channels right. of information, whether it be an alt-weekly or like an art house cinema that was showing Jarmusch. So yeah, definitely go back and listen to that episode 160, Jeff Fierzik. It's f- even if you don't know these films, I think you'll get something out of it. Oh you yeah. Also learn about the legendary Stardust Cowboy, which yeah. I remember. I didn't tell tell him this. I kind of did a little Wikipedia. I'm like, I remember that guy. That guy lived in San Jose for a while. Oh he right. Would do shows. Oh And I wow. would remember seeing the name, but I was too young to like go to the shows. I'm just like, I just it was just like the name of a weirdo who would play shows in town. I'm just like, I just like, Oh yeah. Legendary starters cowboy. He's some weird local, but apparently he had this whole backstory, which you really have to listen to that episode to get into the backstory. Yeah, definitely listen to that episode. And again, it's like, I just love, I love the idea of like, what was the trigger that got you started? Why, why, why this of all Mm -hmm. the things, why, why would you pick this band half Japanese or, you know, JT Leroy or whatever? Like, like you have so many to pick from, like, how do you know, you know, that's, that really, really interests me. Um, and Jeff was great to talk to because again, he's made some of my favorite docs and this story was fascinating. It was really hard to pick one clip from, from this interview because, um, there's a, there's a few that are just amazing so that's yeah that's episode uh 160 and um let's uh we'll go to a break and then we'll see you guys on the other side we have more clips welding instructor alex declare knows vr training platforms like forge fx help students master their skills There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
Okay, we are back. I hope you guys are enjoying this episode. Um, this has been really fun to um, go back and do some deep dives, which is I haven't listened to some of this stuff in quite a while. So it's been kind of fun to go back to our earlier episodes and um, get a feel for it. Did you did you happen to like bounce around a little bit, George, in our our older catalog? I did like go back and I actually made a little list of like every interview we've done that was with the director i'm like yeah there's 23 is that right we've talked to 23 different directors yes and a few of those uh i think i I did a couple of those as solos just because of the timing it worked out better if i could do yeah there was like a bunch of people we didn't even get to in this um a a lot of first-time directors i've talked to as well um there is a you should put a link in the show notes you can check out our entire catalog of the director talks which is really like, yeah, you really get a lot more like uh, in-depth uh, knowledge about yeah. specific films. Well, and it's it's interesting, too, because there's I I think it's like a mix. Be- what I kind of like is that, you know, the directors have given kind of the same interview. So they kind of have these answers that they go to. And mm-hmm. it's fun to, like, get them out of that almost like headscape, if you will. Like, yeah. I like at- trying to find questions that they probably haven't been asked yet, you know, and really get into stuff. If you can, like, Nardwar one of these directors, like, basically, like, you know, if you don't know, Nardwar is this uh, pretty well-known Canadian interviewer. He'll find, like, some research where, like, only, like, that person's, like, sister knows the story. Right. And, be, and then he'll bring it up in the conference. Like, I brought you a prop. This is your right. high school <laughs> band photo. Like, yeah. he'll do something like that. Like, we're not at that level of a Nardwar, but if you can just, like, if people are impressed if you've seen even one of their other films, yeah. <laughs> you come and talk to them. Because they when they do these press junkets, like, a pro journalist have to like crank through so much stuff like right we we actually do it we do a lot of research for this show we do i don't know if people know that but um we we do a bit of hunting around but what i think makes it kind of refreshing is that we're not film historians we're not even filmmakers we're just a couple of doc dorks that love watching documentaries and doing stand-up. And it's like, I, I, I like coming from that angle with people because like, I, I don't know how this fucking works. And it's really like when we talked to Rodney Asher, that was so interesting, you know? Yeah. I mean like, like yeah, like we, I mean, I feel like I, like I don't consider what we do journalism, <laughs> uh, but I've no done like, I've done like arts journalism stuff before. Uh, but yeah, I, I didn't, you know, I'm not like trained in like this kind of stuff. It's just like from doing zines and basically like, I think of podcasts as like an extension of like zine culture. Right. Pretty much. Yeah, it's just like enthusiasms. Uh, speaking of enthusiasms, oh, uh, this was a fun episode we got to do I remember this being more recent than 2016 but it was Brent Hodge who we had actually had on the show as one of our other earliest uh, directors he had made this I am Chris Barley documentary which is great and uh, he got tapped to do this Freaks and Geeks documentary like an official Freaks and Geeks was it like the 20 year anniversary of freaks and geeks or something what was the deal with this i don't know 15 year it was just like it was like i don't know there was a freaks and geeks uh everyone from freaks and geeks had become so 
Oh, it was 2018. It was, uh, everyone from yeah. Creeks and Geeks had become so successful, essentially, right. that it warranted a documentary. Like Linda Cardellini, uh, Franco, everyone. Like in yeah. Apatow. Yeah. Uh, even the guy who played the lead, like his name Sam is a character's name. He was he was like a co-author on on the Spider-Man movies when it was right. It's bizarre. Um, yeah. So it was like this really, really interesting, uh, I, I enjoyed Freaks and Geeks, but I wouldn't say I was like super, super knowledgeable about it. But, uh, Brent got to talk to everyone, uh, who was, yeah, he talked to almost everyone that was involved in the making of Freaks and Geeks. Judd Apatow. Yeah. And we, so this was a, was this, this was during SF Doc Fest actually. Yeah. That we were able to do this at the Roxy, Love the Roxy in the mission. And, you know, Brent used to live in San Francisco. Uh, we were, we, uh, did we pitch to moderate this or did he pitch it to us? How do we work this out? Uh, both. He yeah. hit, he hit us up and said, Hey, I'd like you guys to be involved in this. And we're like, Hey, let's do it at SF doc fest. And he knows those guys. And he was like, I'll have you guys just host it. And it was also, if I might say, the night that the Warriors won the championship. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And it was in the mission of San Francisco, and it, the place was absolutely going insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, we were right across the street, and, like, people were, like, like doing breakdancing in the middle <laughs> yeah. of the street. It was pretty yeah. nice. In San Francisco, yeah. Um, so, yeah, this is a fun little clip. Uh, I don't know what the context is. The context sort of explains itself here. There's just, like, a lot of random interviews and that was just one random interview that we really focused on in Brent Hodges' Freaks and Geeks documentary. But yeah, um, this is live from the Roxy 2018 with Brent Hodge. What the fuck is up with the guy from Styx? Okay. <laughs> okay, this is a great story. Okay, so Dennis DeYoung, I, when we first did this doc, A&E commissioned it. And they just wanted like a few of the A-listers to explain Freaks and Geeks, and that was it. And I was like, no, we're doing the Freaks and Geeks doc. Like the, I, I got a hold of Judd. I said, this is the official doc. We're going to make it happen. I'm getting all the cast creators. We're going to get Sarah, Sarah uh, Hagen, like Millie. We're going to get Harris, uh, Stephen Lee Shepard. We're going to get everyone, not just A-listers. And I said, I have to get the Joan Jett song covered by my friend Hannah Georges, and I have to get that stick song. And so I got a hold of Dennis DeYoung, and he said, um, meet me backstage at my concert. He still tours. And he's, he's a lunatic, <laughs> like an absolute lunatic. Across. And he goes, uh, meet me backstage in Staten Island, and come see me play live. And so he played, and my girlfriend went on stage. Like, it was the weirdest night. And he said, you can interview me for this? Oh, no, sorry, you can have my song as long as you interview me in the film. <laughs> And I was like, okay, fine, sounds good. So he gave us the song for free, as long as he was in the film. And then he ended up being like this guru wizard from the desert. <laughs> and I, I was like, shit, you're like, you're phenomenal. And so it, it turned out, but yeah, I'm like friends with Dennis DeYoung from Sticks now. <laughs> it's the weirdest life ever. And yeah. uh, That's hilarious, because he is crazy in that documentary. <laughs> like, it's like, like, it really comes across as you're like, this dude is nuts. Yeah, and, and like, yeah, like, it was a, just a deal. Like, this is this is the price of the song. But right. it ended up working out. And, it, yeah, yeah. That was awesome. And and it's great that, uh, that Brent was able to do this because he was one of our first doc 
uh, directors that we talked to as well, because he did I Am Chris Farley, um, who just passed away, who passed away rather 27 years ago, and he did the I Am Chris Farley documentary, so we got to talk to him. So it was pretty sweet to be able to do this live at SF Doc Fest. And yeah, if you see the Freaks and Geeks documentary, um, you will you'll under completely understand what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, if you remember that. Also, uh, shout out to Will, our pre- super producer, for somehow wrangling live audio at the Roxy. Like you can tell, like the room tone is like a bit boomier than our usual shows. But it's also so fun to do something with a live audience. Like we've done a couple things with live audiences. Uh, like I would love to moderate more panels. Uh, oh yeah, Will has actually recorded at the Roxy many times, and we used to do talkies in the little Roxy room. So yeah, he's very familiar with the setup there. But um, yeah, still like we can't do our live shows without having Will. So again, shout out to Will. Yes, uh, who's on online with us right now. Um, yeah, that was a really fun episode to do, and that's episode one oh, it's episode ninety three. That's ninety three mm-hmm. from twenty eighteen. Yeah, and so um, the last one we're going to play for you guys is we talked to the Academy Award-winning documentary filmmaker Brett Morgan in 2018. This is episode 102. Uh, This was amazing, and this started because I was drunk one (laughs) night and decided to just uh, tweet him. Uh, He had tweeted that... Something about Crossfire Hurricane, which is the the great Rolling Stones documentary that he made, he he made mentioned it. I don't remember what it was, but I wrote to him. I, I was like, that documentary is awesome, and you're one of my favorites. And he wrote like, oh, okay, thanks. And I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to see if you'll come on Subdoc. So I was like, I have a podcast about documentaries, and we'd love to talk to you. Would you come on? And he wrote, sure. And then he hit me up. He sent me a DM like, hey, if this is if you really want to do this, this is how you get a hold of me. And I was like, what? Oh, and you awesome. drove down from San Francisco just to do this interview. Like I think we like met up at a cafe across the street. And we're just like, okay, we're going to go into Brett Morgan's office. Yeah. Let's just like do this. Yeah. And like, we had no idea what the setup was going to be exactly. Another very acoustically not ideal for podcasting. Like he has a very nice marble office with high ceilings yes. and, a glass, and glass windows. It's like, this is not the best acoustic room for doing an interview, but like, we're, what are we going to do? We're not going to, we're going to say no to this guy. He just won an Oscar for Jane, right? Literally that year or the year before. Um, And made some of our favorite documentaries like uh, Kids Stays in the Picture. So yeah, uh, this was like a really... And you wanted to say like how you felt like there was a little bit of like ice to break in the beginning. We had to melt him a little bit, right? Yeah, well he, you know, I think... I think one, he's not, you know, used to podcast people just showing up being like, we love you. Let's, we want to record an episode with you. Cause I remember we, we were in his lobby for a while. I think I had like four glasses of water just sitting there. <laughs> and then um, I've, I, don't, I mean, I've never met him. I didn't know what he was going to be like. And it was a little, he was a little standoffish, a little cautious, trying to feel us out. We were trying to feel him out. And he was given what I thought were kind of just pat responses, like responses that he'd given before. And he was being a little coy and i'm like dude i just drove six hours to do this so in my head in my head i'm thinking i don't this is not the interview i want i want to get into it so i i yeah. made a joke and i basically said have you ever made a documentary you actually ever wanted to make because he was he's like i don't even like docs mate you know and i was like come <laughs> yeah. on man and then he i think he enjoyed the arc. and after that we had a great talk man he really yeah. loosened up and at yeah. one point george he even said like oh you guys want you you want something 
I'll give you something. You guys want some scuttlebutt? I'll give you some scuttlebutt. Remember that? And I was like, yes. uh, yeah, he's, he's kind of, yeah, he's kind of doing bits with us, really. I mean, he was he doing get, bits. He doesn't get the opportunity to do it. Like when, like, you want to talk about Jane Goodall, you know, like, it's right. not really the, the time to be cracking wise. But like, obviously, this guy's done a bunch of stuff, done a ton of research. Uh, yeah, this is a really fun interview. Well, and uh, also for me, um, I love The Kid Stays in the Picture. It was a defining documentary for me. I had never, I didn't know who Robert Evans was. And it, I can't tell you the level of that DVD in my life. I bought it for people for Christmas. I bought it for presents. I got the book. There was the cartoon that I was into. My friend and I were having uh, Robert Evans like impression offs. And there was a, even a time when I wanted to make a documentary called uh, Finding Robert Evans. I wanted to go to his house. Oh, yeah. And I wanted to meet him. And then we find out, and I don't think it's in this clip, but he was like, you know, Robert Evans just lives down the street. And I was like, yeah, I mean, can we go? And he's like, yeah, he's kind of old now. (laughs) And this was, I think, did he pass away in 2019? So like not long after we did this interview, he actually passed away. So like that, that's referenced. Robert Evans, not Brett. Robert Evans. Yes, exactly. That's what I meant to say. And uh, yeah, Robert Evans, I knew from that Mr. Show bit that Bob Odenkirk does. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> Where he's like, God is basically Robert Evans. Like, did did I make mistakes with Adam? Sure I did, you know. Bet your sweet ass I did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So this is Brett uh, talking about how there's no safety net, and he's like, you know, I just made an Academy Award-winning Doc Jane, and you hear my phone ringing? You're in the lobby. My phone's not ringing off the hook. <laughs> I still have to figure out how to do this. You, st- I still have to make my way, and I'm an independent filmmaker, and that's what this life is about. And then he yeah. tells us about how he actually got to make the kids stays in the picture, and it's an awesome story. So here is episode 102 with Brett Morgan. Obviously, you have that in the back of your mind that like your next project could be your last, but somewhere along the lines, you you, you learned work ethic. Was that from your parents or? No, it's just like total fear or failure, <laughs> yeah. and and that really is what it is. And and that's not that's not like a um, it's not like a, a psycho play. Here's the reality: is um, people people who are on the outside or trying to get into the industry or are starting off in the industry would probably like to think that there's a place that they can arrive at where they can hit the cruise control button. Um, I'm here to tell you that this is how it really works. Montage of Heck uh, in 2015 received seven primetime Emmy nominations out of seven categories. That was, there are only seven documentary categories. We got it nominated in every category. I myself received four Emmy nominations, prime time. I do not believe a single call came in from the moment we got nominated to anywhere. And I remember coming to work the next, that day of the nominations and I, 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 I said to James Smith, my producing partner, I said, hey bro, you hear that? And he goes, what's that? I go, that's the sound of success. He goes, what? <laughs> I go, you hear the phones ringing off the hook? I go, yeah. He goes, yeah, I go, yeah, get used to it. This is how this industry works. Um, Jane, same thing, seven Emmy nominations this year. And we won, you know, a couple Emmys. Yeah. Nothing, dude, no job offers, no, nothing comes in, no phone ringing, nothing. 
Like there was no safety net. You have to make it yourself. You have to write your own script. Interesting. There's Don't no, wait for the phone to ring. Is there's, what there's, it doesn't ring because there's aren't a lot document. Most of the people who are quote unquote documentary producers are, you know, sorry to expose y'all, but <laughs> at this point, drop, drop, drop. they're not coming up with ideas. Their young filmmakers are coming to them because they're known entities and pitching them stuff. And they, 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 it's not like there's these producers who have these ideas and are like, let's find a director for them. Right. Directors have to come up with their own ideas. Right. Dig, dig. Do you like, where, where do you come up? Then where does that come from? Now. I'm going to say something to contradict that okay. because that's who I am and right. there are no absolutes. I've probably been hired, not hired with like a budget in hand and everything. I've probably been hired for every film I've done, but I've, but the film I've made is nothing, bears no semblance to what I was hired to do. Interesting. For example, I was brought into Robert Evans universe, not to do the kid stays in the picture, but by a woman named Pam Brady, who wrote South Park the movie. Okay. And when South Park the movie became a huge hit, Giant. her agent said, you could do anything right now with your career. What do you want to do? And she said, I want to help resuscitate Robert Evans' career. No way. She was a huge fan of the book, The Kid Says yeah. in the Picture. She met with Bob and she said, I want to write a screenplay to bring you back because Bob was in the jungles at this point right. and he was like in total seclusion outside retreat and he had had a heart attack recently and so she came up with this idea to do a i think if i'm not mistaken a um comedy called black eyes figure skating professional figure skating comedy for chris rock <laughs> that would be bob's um bob's uh vehicle back yeah and bob had invited her to move in with him for three months to write the screenplay and pam thought that that would make a great movie and her attorney happened to have been the guy who drove me to school when I was growing up and what? he had seen on the ropes and so he said hey I know this documentarian that is how I ended up doing the kids days in the picture Whoa. you were gonna follow Pam while she was, was hanging out at Pam. Bob's house and then we raised then we raised 1.5 million dollars to shoot that film true this is what I'm about to tell you is a true story <clears throat> it's actually Bob, Bob's version of this story is in his sequel to The Kid Stays in the Picture, The Fat Lady Sang, yeah. a chapter 10 or 11. I actually made it as a character in his book. Here's <laughs> the, what I'm about to tell you is probably not as he tells it, <clears throat> but what happened was we were going to start shooting that film the Monday after the Academy Awards. Um, so Friday, the, the Friday before the Academy Awards, two days before the Academy Awards, um, Nanette and I were doing press for On the Ropes because Tyree Manson, the main character, had got a furlough to attend the Oscar ceremony, which was the breaking story of that weekend. No. We had the, the cover of the New York Post when that meant something. We were going to be the whole story in 2020 that night. I mean, on Nightline. It was like Oscar weekend. We had the bonanza. And I get a call from my agent at Endeavor, and he said, um, I just received a call from Graydon Carter's office at Vanity Fair. And I said, what about it? He said, well, he claims to have the exclusive nonfiction rights to Bob Evans' life and you need to cease and desist. Uh-oh. And I was like, well, that's weird. We're starting production on Monday. I'm who, standing next I go, Yeah, I go, who is this guy? I don't know, Grading Carl, Grading who? Yeah. And so I called. We were literally doing interviews at, at the Four Seasons of Beverly Hills when we got this call. Wow. So I stepped aside and I called Evans. And I said, hi, Bob. 
I got this really crazy call from my agent saying, and I explained the thing. He goes, well, uh, that's, a, uh, that's a problem. <laughs> and I go, uh, it sounds, yeah, it sounds like it's a problem. He goes, why don't you come over here? We'll, we'll <laughs> that's talk a good about Bob it. Evans. And, awesome. um, and I went to his house and, um, yeah, he basically said a couple years earlier, he had told Greg and Carter he could do something. He never thought anything would come from it, but he had called recently. And so that we had to, Whoa. you know, we had to now later, I find out that there was no paper trail between Bob and Graydon. Right. And, um, and I had a paper trail with Bob, but, but, and Bob, but Bob, but Graydon was a more powerful person in this that Bob was not going to He's turn the down. editor, right? Of Vanity yeah. The editor of Vanity Fair shows. And then, and then I went, I went back to my apartment in the Valley when four o'clock that day, I was feeling very dejected, even though I was going to the Oscars two right. days later, I get a call. This no bullshit. I was packing up at my apartment at La Estancia on Vineland and Ventura <laughs> to go stay at the Chateau Marmont where TLC was going to put me up for the week, Oscar weekend. Whoa. When the phone rings, I pick it up. I go, hello, Evan's here. Hi, Bob. How fast can you be at my house, kid? <laughs> um, probably in like 25 minutes. Why? He goes, Grid and Cut is here. He wants to meet you. Oh, shit. Get your ass over here now. <laughs> Click. <laughs> I fucking, like I had just been gutted by this guy yeah. earlier in the day. And then I raced over fucking cold water thinking I'm in a fucking, I'm now in the kid stays in the picture. Yeah, like right. this is so dramatic with Oscars weekend <laughs> right, and everything. Yeah. And I, I went to Bob's house. I met Graydon. He told me what he was going to do. The kid stays in the picture. And I said, well, listen, you're doing that. We're doing Bob today. Why don't we do both and just do them under the same umbrella? Smart. And we'll do the kid stays in the picture first. Smart. Because that sets up for the second one. Smart. And so we made a handshake deal. There. Now, flash forward months later, when I really know Bob well, it's very clear to me that there is no way in hell Bob would have ever no. done a Cinema Verite documentary, ever. I said to him, and we're sitting there, and I go, Bob, you were never going to do that documentary with Pam and I, were you? And he goes, never. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and I go, well, why in the world were you stringing us out? And he goes, look where it's brought us. No, get the fuck out of here. That's fucking Evans, dude. Wow. <laughs> and anyone who says otherwise can fuck off. <laughs> oh, man. That is awesome. What a great story. fucking story. <laughs> that is yeah. awesome, dude. Like, that is, to me, I mean, that's just, that's so Hollywood. I love it so much that Robert Evans would do that. And that's just like one of the many fascinating Brett Morgan tales where you really, he really gets into like doing the voices and everything, but that's episode 102 from 2018. Uh, great, great interview. Oh uh, yeah. One of our highlights. Yeah. When he talks about interviewing Mick Jagger and everybody for Crossfire Hurricane and does his Jagger impression where he was just like, Jagger wouldn't give him anything. And he was basically like, fuck you, man. Like, mm -hmm. you know, like you're, you're, you hired me to do this basically. And you know, uh, that's also a great story. Um, and I wish, I don't know if we can even say it, but he told us what his new project was. Remember? <laughs> I mean, did he tell us or we just figured it out based on all this stuff that was around his office? No. He told us. He told yeah. us. We asked him. Yeah, yeah. And he, he said, like, hey, this is I, – I was given all this information. He even showed us the the Final Cut Pro editing thing mm. of that, but it hasn't come out. So hopefully yeah. – 
hopefully when that doc comes out, we can we can talk to him about it. I don't want to tell people because I don't think we're supposed to. So, but no, nah, it's it'll be a big one when it does drop. Yeah, yeah. But that is such a great story, and again, it's one of those things like he said, like you just. In the entertainment business, you cannot rest. You cannot rest. It's like, what have you done for me lately? What have you made lately? Like he said, like he just made Jane. Like it was an Academy Award winning documentary and nobody was calling him, you know? Like we also, we were also there when his his wife got some good news. Like one of her films had been greenlit or something. Or got in a Sundance or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then, and but... That was such a, that was so great. I love that interview because like, like we said, uh, you know, the kid stays in the picture was such a big documentary for me and to be able to, um, get to talk to him and about the making of was amazing. Paco, what, what would you say would be your white whale of a director that you'd like to talk to? It's gotta be Errol Morris. Well, fuck. I mean, I would love to talk to Michael Moore. I just get the feeling he'd be kind of a dick to us. So I don't, I kind (laughs) of don't want to, um, Werner Herzog is probably my white whale. And then it would be Errol Morris. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, those are two good ones. I definitely was thinking about those two. Yeah. But Michael Moore would be awesome because like Roger and me was literally one of the first docs I ever saw. And I was like, I love this art form. I don't know what the hell is going on, but I dig it. Well, what we're doing is we're manifesting out to the universe through this director's clip episode. Werner, Errol, if you're listening, just hit us up on our Gmail. We'd even take a Morgan Spurlock maybe, you know? We... Yeah, maybe uh, we could. Uh, I, I mean, I'd offer to like, you know, when we can travel again, we can just do it over Skype. Imagine just imagine zooming with Herzog. We have to like we have to like film that. Uh, oh, of course. So that would be <laughs> in, insane. I guess this new doc is supposed to be really good. I haven't seen it yet, but um, yeah, I would love to talk to Werner Herzog. Oh, my God. I mean, just well, our, our, our inbox is open yeah. uh, to anyone out there. You know, who and, wants I, to. and I don't know if, um, you know, this is something that we, we used to, we had talked about in the past. We even did it for a couple people, but if you actually, if you are watching docs and want to send us your own like review of it, just record it on your phone and, and send it to us. Email us subdocpodcast at gmail.com. We, you know, we'd love to have hear what other people are listening to and what they think about docs. Yeah, I'd even be and I'd be open to like if people actually just wanted to write reviews for the bl- for the web the blog on our website. That might be that be something we'd be down to do as well. Yeah, yeah we want to engage with people, engage with listeners, and and know what you're watching, what you think of docs, what what you don't like about what's happening now. There's doc series or a thing. Oh, I just watched one of the worst doc. We're gonna have to talk about this in a, a Patreon episode. I'm just like I was like, oh man, I'm what? so pissed off. Uh, well, I'm gonna save the name. We don't. Oh, need okay. To, we don't need to <laughs> <laughs> but this is the uh, last episode of 2020 for SupDoc. Um, thank you guys so much for listening. It's been quite the year. We've had to do some scrambling like everybody else. Um, but thank you so much, guys, for listening, supporting us. Um, you know, a few people have uh, emailed us with different ideas and different things and hit us up on um, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Yeah, we we hope to bring you more director talks and uh, other just reviews and recaps in 2021. Uh, good riddance to 2020, guys. Just, just goodbye to this bullshit year. Yeah, and let's 
you know, I do the the avalanche of Trump era administrative bullshit documentaries that are going to be coming out soon. Oh, oh, it's going to be. I just, ugh. Hopefully, there'll be one from like from from Manhattan to prison. The Trump story would be I'm, awesome. I'm wondering when, like, the next format of uh, like AR VR, we're gonna have oh, documentaries in VR at some point. Like, like this is you inside of Mar-a-Lago or something like oh, that. Oh wow, yeah, yeah. or yeah. yeah, Timothy Treadwell in VR form. Oh boy, <laughs> you you. <laughs> Eat will eat could be eaten like I am. Yeah, it could be. be. But uh, anyway, so um, if you if you <laughs> hit us up on Patreon, if you'd like to support our show, uh, you can find us at patreon.com slash podcast. Just a dollar a month would be awesome. Um, and we'll be back in January. So yeah. um, watch this space for for the next uh, 2021 episode of SupDoc. George, any parting words? I got nothing, man. Oh. Just like keep subscribe to, to subscribe. Just rate, <laughs> review, subscribe. Tell your friends, tell your enemies. But thank you also to Nick, who was a great assistance this year, who joined us. And of course, Will, the genius behind the knobs. Um, thanks to those guys. George, happy holidays. I hope you have a good and safe one. And um, we'll see you guys in 2021.